care, you expect to be able to live out your final days as well as you can. Tonight we delve into what horrors will await you when things go so very wrong. This is the case of Elizabeth Wetluffer, Killer Nurse. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. I'm back from amazing Thailand and I have a case for you this tonight that will shock you. But then again, probably not surprise you either, especially some of the nurses we have on the island. Now tonight I've got parts from The Star, CBC, Nurses Lab and Global News. So let's get stuck into it. You may have heard about it, it is a recent case. And the main character in this horrific saga is Canadian Elizabeth Wetloffer, or her birth name, Elizabeth May May Parker. She was born June 10, 1967 to Doug and Hazel Parker and she liked to be called Beth. Her father described her as a kind, smart and compassionate person. She went to school in Woodstock, which is in southwestern Ontario, Canada. Now, she graduated high school at Huron Park Secondary School and there is a photo of her in the yearbook and I'd just like to read out the caption says, Beth is best known for instigating Timbit parties in biology and never quite getting organised. Okay, now, for all the non-Canadians, Timbits apparently are the little round balls from the middle of a donut. That's all I could find. That's one of those things, I suppose, like we have Tim Tams, they have Timbits. The favourite saying is, Randy, do you know what we're supposed to be doing now? Poor fucking Randy. <laughs> She's already... Starting to annoy me, probably did annoy Randy. Anyway, her close friend when she was young was Glenn Hart. Now, it's said that kids would tease her and call her Bethy. Here comes little Bethy Parker. Well, she decided to change the spelling of her name from Beth, B-E-T-H, to Beth, B-E-T-H-E, to stop from being called Bethy. But adding an E to the end actually made everyone call her Bethy, and that's what she hated. So, I don't know what's going on there. At school, she was a goalie in the hockey team and played in school bands. She once tried to get a boy she disliked in trouble by setting off the fire alarm. I don't know, maybe he knocked her back. Anyway, the fact we know she set off the alarm means her plan must have failed. She was knocked back by a girl she liked as well. So she was obviously exploring her sexuality, but I'm not sure how far she sort of got with it at school. Now, this bit I did read from her end of high school yearbook. It says, in the future, Beth plans to attend Windsor or any other university with a good drama department. Look, from what I can see, she's her own drama department, but let's go on. She will never forget early morning music rehearsals, watching DP Ski on her face, Florida 84 and the rock and pop show 85. Beth would like to ask, how many brain cells did you kill this weekend? 
Now, this last bit is telling, as she would suffer drug addiction and substance abuse throughout her life. Now, I don't know what watching DP ski on her face means. I don't know if that's a Canadian thing. I have no fucking idea what that means. Anyway, so from what it looks like here, Wetloffer seems to be a, a bit of an awkward... She was probably bullied. In fact, she was a little bit bullied. But she was trying to fit in as best as she can. She never realised the goals she set for herself either. Now, I can see some bitter twistedness starting to seed itself in Wetloffer, which will grow and, as we'll see, will in part at least bring on what she would become to call the Red Mist. Her dad was a full-on Baptist that hated gays. He kept tabs on her at all times, and when she attended a gay-friendly church, he made sure she went home and wasn't allowed to go back. She was then subjected to what was known as conversion therapy, and that's where the gayness is purged from you by God or a psychological means. Yes, that's true. Her friend Glenn Hart, who was gay, said how he would talk about how she lived with a lot of depression, a lot of self-loathing and self-doubt. You can imagine it's normally difficult enough growing up, but without having a religious freak father. And also, you know, she suffered from not getting the attention she wanted at school. Wetloffer then did a year of journalism school before going to London Baptist Bible College where she studied a degree in counselling. But Wetloffer knew that this wasn't really going to pay the bills, so she went back to high school for a year and did some maths and science. She then studied nursing at Kitchener's Conestoga College and became licensed in 1995. She met her husband-to-be, Donnie Wetloffer, in 1979 at church. He was a long-distance truck driver, and they lived together in a small house in Woodstock. They separated in 2007, around the same, same time she started her new career as a serial killer while keeping her day job as a nurse. Apparently, he found out she was looking to hook up online with woman, women and had become involved with one and feeling betrayed, Donnie left her. Now, this is where, being a nurse, she started getting into drugs that she stole from work. In fact, when she first became a nurse in 1995, she was busted for stealing drugs from a workplace and being found off her face on these drugs at work. She was to be fired, but as she was in a union, they shook hands and called it a voluntary resignation and it was not reported to the College of Nursing of Ontario. She also started to become a little bit mentally unstable, maybe from the drugs or maybe it was always there in the background. She ended up moving in with this woman that she'd met and even become, became engaged. Their relationship ended less than a year later in 2008. Anyway, so we'll go back to 2007 now. Wetloffer started to work at Crescent Care, which is a long-term care home in Woodstock or an old folks' home. She got the job with no real interview. She was shown around the facility, informed of her duties and hired on the spot. Helen Crombez, Crescent's former director of nursing, said, She was eager. She was happy. She was a minister's daughter. <laughs> What could go wrong? I thought we were blessed to have her walk through the door. Now, not long after she started working there on the night shift, she started to really go off the rails. While she worked there, she started to steal drugs to feed her addiction. 
She was stealing hydromorphone, which is a pure opoid, a semi-synthetic hydrogenated ketone derivative of morphine. When the drugs were found to be missing and police called in, she just played dumb and it seemed like nothing really happened. This addiction was probably half the reason she was often late or absent from work. There were many complaints about the way she treated staff and patients along with many medication errors. Whenever she was reprimanded or suspended, the union would step in on her behalf. In fact, it was easier for caressant administrators to issue warnings to Wetloffer rather than fight her and the unions in court. Plus, it was far too difficult to recruit, train and retain night shift staff. In fact, staff at the care home stopped reporting her as nothing seemed to ever happen. She seemed invincible. Anyway, let's get back to what she would become infamous for, killing of the patients in her care. She injected two of the residents with insulin, 87-year-old Clotilde Adriano, who suffered from dementia and was diabetic. And there was also 87-year-old Albina Demedieros, who was diabetic. Now, both those survived. And this wasn't long after she'd started working at Crescent in 2007. Now, I've tried to verify these dates as we go on as best as possible. And for each of these events, what I'll do is I'll read out what Wetloffer wrote in what would become her confession letter, rather than just read the letter out in full separately. So on August the 17th, 2007, James Silcox, 84, Second World War veteran of the Royal Canadian Army Service and father of six, well, what Wetloffer wrote was he was not a diabetic, but he had dementia. She said, I was working a double shift, 3 p.m. to 7 a.m. James was known for inappropriately touching the staff. He was also known for saying that his wife was a big whore and was going to fuck all of Woodstock. James was not a diabetic. That evening, I got the urge to overdose James. I was angry that he was so inappropriate. At approximately 9.30pm, I decided to overdose him with insulin, hoping he would die. I felt it was his time to go because of the way he acted. I remember feeling angry at him. I went into the med room and used a spare insulin needle to prepare a dose of 50 units of short-acting insulin. I gave it to him at approximately 10.30pm. Throughout the night after I overdosed him, James called out, I'm sorry and I love you. At approximately 3am, the RNAs found James' vital signs absent. I called the attending physician and James' family to inform them of James's death. The physician ruled the cause of death to be a post-surgery embolism. Now, she didn't mention he groped her, and you can imagine calling his wife a whore and all that was just probably his dementia acting up. Anyway, she decided to kill him. Okay, we've got a few more of these to go through, so we'll go on to the next one, and that's Maurice Granat. He was 84, a mechanic and automotive body man. He would die December 23, 2007. She wrote of Morris, not a diabetic, cancer patient. I was told by one of the nurses that Maurice had a bad habit of grabbing the staff's breasts and asses. One afternoon I was working and I felt angry. 
I gave Morris approximately 40 units of short-acting insulin at around 8pm. By the next morning, he was in a coma. He died sometime that afternoon. Now again, she doesn't say she was groped, but others were. So, you know, I don't, I don't know about that. Anyway, after Morris, Wetloffer injected Michael Priddle, 63, with insulin, but he survived. Now, I'm not sure of the exact date of that. And Wetloffer injected Caressant Care resident Wayne Hedges with insulin, and he also survived. Now, we get to Gladys Millard, 87, widowed mother of two. Now, she would die on October 14, 2011. Now, that's quite a few years later. That's about, well, four years later. She wrote, type 2 diabetic, dementia. Gladys had severe dementia and no longer talked. She was very stubborn and horribly difficult to give her pills to. I was working 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. At around 5 a.m., I gave her 40 units of long-acting insulin and 60 units of short-acting insulin. At approximately 7am, she became unresponsive and diaphoretic. She died that evening. Now, when it gets down to the amounts that she's giving people, I asked my sister on the weekend, she's a, a nurse or she was a nurse, and I said, are these 40 units, 60 units, you know, sort of these amounts a lot? And she seemed to think they were. So, you know, I don't know personally, but I know we've got a few nurses out there that do listen. If you can get in contact and just say, is this a lot of insulin, especially if somebody is or isn't a diabetic? So that's three dead now. And we get on to Helen Matheson. She's 95. Imagine getting to 95. A widowed mother of two. Now, this is on October 27, 2011. She would die. So this is only nearly two weeks after Gladys's death. And Gladys was four years after we had Morris die. So there's, it's not like it's escalating. It's, it's a bit random. Although, who really knows what, whatever went on in between these times? So, Helen Matheson, 95, widowed mother of two. This is October 27, 2011. Wetloffer wrote, not a diabetic, but dementia. Helen was quiet and reserved. One afternoon, I gave her an overdose of insulin. It was approximately 50 units of short-acting insulin. I'm not sure why I chose her. I was feeling angry and frustrated about my job. After the overdose, she stopped talking and eating. The doctor declared her to be palliative. She died two days later. Yeah, so this woman seemed to just be 95 and be hanging out trying to get to 100. And she just kills her. She doesn't even know why she chose her. So it's a little bit crazy. But the next person we get to isn't that far away. This is November 7th, 2011. So this is only a week or so after Helen. This was Mary Zurawinski. She was 96. Now, this was, like I said, November 7, 2011. Wetloffer said, not a diabetic, but dementia. She wrote, Mary was spunky, thin and outspoken. One afternoon around 4 p.m., I gave her 50 units of short-acting insulin and 30 units of long-acting insulin. She bugged me because she was outspoken and resistive to care. I was feeling very angry in general. She died the next afternoon. 
Now, what I reckon is in Mary's case, Mary was spunky, thin and outspoken. So she's 96. She's having the best time as she can. She's suffering from dementia. But other than that, she probably is quite popular with staff. I reckon that's why Wetloffer killed her. It's like, oh, she's getting all the attention. You know, she's having a good time as best as she can. I'll just kill her. And this is, I think, some of the root of why this all happened. But we'll get to that a bit later. Next was a couple of years later. This, well, a year and a half later. Helen Young, she was 90 on July 14, 2013. She was a type 2 diabetic and suffered from dementia. Wetloffer wrote, Helen was feisty and outspoken. She was constantly saying, help me nurse. She frequently yelled out, I want to die. One afternoon, I felt like something snapped inside of me. She kept yelling out she wanted to die. I thought angrily, fine, I'll help you die. I gave her 60 units of short-acting insulin just before supper. After supper, I gave her 60 units of long-acting insulin. At approximately 8pm, the PSWs called me to her room. Helen was having a seizure. She was not epileptic. I took all her vital signs and pretended to take her blood sugar. She died two days later. Now, I think this is another case. She was feisty, outspoken. Now, you got to th- these people are suffering dementia. So when they're calling their wives whores and, and help me nurse, I want to die, this is probably what happens when you get dementia. This stuff happens. But again, when she said she was feisty and outspoken, it's almost like Wetloffer's jealous of this person. That's why she's going to kill her. Anyway, we'll go on. This is now March 28, 2014, so it's within a year of Helen Young's death. It's Maureen Pickering, 79. This is March 28, 2014. Wetloffer writes, dementia, not diabetic. She says Maureen had a lot of behaviours. She would hit other residents or pull their hair. She was not one to care at all. We didn't always have the staff for this. Sometimes I had to be with her one-on-one as well as give pills to 32 people, do paperwork and treatments. One afternoon shift, we didn't have the staff one-to-one. I was angry, frustrated and irritated. She kept yelling out random things. After supper, I gave her a hold-off shot to calm her down. Now, that's what she's written. I don't know if it's a typo or whatever, but it's hold-off shot to calm her down. Then I got the idea that if I could cause her some brain damage, she wouldn't be such a handful. What the, what the fuck? I'll just give her a little bit of brain damage. This 79-year-old woman, fuck's sake. At approximately 8pm, I gave her 80 units of long-acting insulin. That night, she had a stroke. She was sent to hospital where she became comatose. She died approximately five days later. There you go. Now, over the course of the seven years she worked at Crescent, Wetloffer made many mistakes and found herself being reprimanded for just doing the wrong thing. But they could never really get rid of her because the union would step up and Crescent would back down. Now, finally, it's here that Crescent was able to get rid of Wetloffer. But after Again, intervention from the union, 
her record of dismissal was changed to a voluntary resignation due to, due to medical reasons. Wetloffer was awarded a settlement and was given a letter of recommendation. I mean, what the fuck? This is what other employ, employers are going to look at when seeing if they should employ this person. So it's like, oh, look, she's had a few problems, but, you know, we gave her some payout, and here's a letter of recommendation, employer. Well, she did. She got a job. She then started working at Meadow Park Nursing Home in London, Ontario. It's here that Arpad, or as he was known, Art Horvath, he was 75, he would die on August the 31st, 2014. He suffered from dementia, but wasn't a diabetic. Wetluffer wrote, Art was physically abusive to the staff. He would pinch and hit. One evening, I decided enough was enough. I felt angry, frustrated, vindictive and energised. I gave Art around 80 units of short-acting insulin and 60 units of long-acting insulin at approximately 8pm. During the night, he had a stroke and died about four or five days later. Well, there you go. She's moved on. Bang. Straight into killing people again. It's it's disgusting when you really look at this whole thing. Now, again, on September the 1st, 2015, at, to September the 30th, 2015, we're not too sure, Whitloffer injected 77-year-old Sandra Towler. I think it's Towler or Fowler. I've got two different names there. He uh, injected her with insulin with intent to murder. At the te- this was at the Telfer Place Retirement Home in Paris, Ontario. So she's already moved on from the Meadow Park Nursing Home in London, Ontario. Now, Wetloffer gave her 80 units of long-acting insulin and 60 units of short-acting insulin. She somehow survived. Now, between August the 1st, 2016 and August the 30th, 2016... That's about a year later. Wetloffer injected 68-year-old Beverly Bertram with insulin with intent to murder while the woman was living at a private residence in Ingersoll, Ontario. Wetloffer gave her 120 units of long-acting insulin. But luckily, Beverly survived. Now, Beverly was at home and this was a home care situation. So we have... Eight dead patients and several, that's four, that survived over a period of near, nearly 10 years, this was. In amongst this period, around seven years at Crescent and then several other facilities over those last few years, Wetloffer was reported many times for stealing and using drugs, abusing staff and patients. Once, she was found passed out in the car park, but she was somehow able to retain her employment. Nurses at Crescent called her the angel of death. They knew something was wrong but were powerless to do anything about her. Sort of like Roger Dean that I covered in episode 9 where he killed 11 11 residents of the Quakers Hill nursing home by setting fire to the place to cover up his theft of drugs. So this goes on. He wasn't properly vetted as well as they, just like Crescent, were desperate for staff who were willing to work night shift. That's exactly the same situation here. Anyway, Wetluffer in 2008. So that's a long time before. She told a friend what she'd done, but they didn't report her to police. She'd also told a priest. Priest, still nothing happened, I guess. Well, she's Baptist. She's not Catholic, so it's not like a confessional. Like They're not allowed to tell anyone. Now, she also told her lawyer, 
who told her to keep it a secret. Good on you, mate. Wetloffer would later say that when she told people, they just didn't believe her or take her seriously. You know, I've said this before, if I murdered someone, I would expect to be caught pretty much straight away. Wetloffer got away with this for a decade. She even told people about it, was acting absolutely incompetently at work, off her face and making mistakes, but she just seemed to keep going undetected. In 2016, according to Nurses Lab, she decided to leave nursing after the agency wanted to assign her to work with insulin-dependent children. She knew she couldn't control her impulses and after first wanting to run away to another city, she decided to face her actions. Wetloffer booked into the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH, where she confessed to her crimes to the staff. Now, thank fucking God they contacted the College of Nurses of Ontario and the police. Wetloffer sent the CNO an email resigning from her position confessed her crimes and told them she was being investigated by police. Now, she'd written a four-page confession which she had the staff at the rehab fax through to the CNO. She was then arrested. So that four-page confession is basically what I read out in between those murders. Now, this part is what, what actually got me interested in the case. You can watch her interview with police on YouTube. Now, I've watched it at least a dozen times or more, and it's absolutely surreal. She's so matter-of-fact when answering the investigators' questions, she's even joking with them at times. It's so hard to describe. You have just put in there, Wetloffer's Confession. Now, I'll give you the spelling. W-E-T-T-L-A-U-F-E-R. Absolutely surreal. Now, she told them how she would get the red mist and the urge to kill, and that after she admitted the insulin, she would hear her own laughter afterwards, which was like a cackling from the pit of hell. She also told them she thought God or the devil, not too sure which one, wanted her to do it, and being a Christian as she was, you know, they could make her stop as well. But she knew, she did did tell them, that she knew right from wrong, so she knew what she was doing pretty much. What will blow you away is at the end of the interview, they ask her what she would like to happen. She tells them she wants to go home, sort out a few things with the parents and get her shit in order. I suppose she just wants to make sure she's turned her Netflix off or whatever. I don't know. This is She's talking for a couple of hours to the cops about killing eight people. And she's saying, oh, yeah, I just want to go home, do a few things, talk to my parents. I mean, this is madness. Anyway, in true Canadian fashion, we love these Canadians. The interviewer, the copper, he tells her that, yeah, that could probably work. We could work something out like that, you know. But don't don't leave town, Lizzie. We may need to put you in jail one day. Well, it wasn't exactly like that, but it it just seemed so casual and friendly. Yeah, we'll put you on this, do this. We, I'm sure we can find a, work something out with you. Anyway, just watch that video. It will explain it all. Wetluffer was charged with eight counts of murder on October the 25th, 2016. Later, after further investigation, she was also charged with four counts of attempted murder and two counts of aggravated assault. So that was the people who didn't die. Now, she waived her right to a preliminary hearing and confessed to all charges in court on the 
on June the 1st, 2017. On June 26, 2017, Wetloffer was sentenced to eight concurrent life terms in prison, with no possibility for parole for 25 years. Of course, out of all of this, there would be inquiries on how the fuck this could happen. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on all these inquiries. I'm sure they're not all over yet. But I will just read out one quote I found online, which I read before, but it seems to get right to the point. Brenda Van Quatham, an administrator at Crescent, she testified that the CNO made it difficult to reprimand or terminate Wetloffer. It was simpler and cheaper not to fight the union and issue warnings instead. She also testified that because of the nursing shortage, the facility found it challenging to recruit and retain retain staff, especially for night shift. Now, I think in most Western countries at least, aged care, it's a business, and like any business, they need to make a profit. So corners are cut and administrators and even government agencies tend to turn a blind eye to any shortcomings. Now, when something like this happens, everyone starts pointing fingers at everyone else. The elderly, look, they were the ones that built what we all enjoy today and to see some that spend the last days of their life under the care of people like Wetloffer, who was clearly incompetent for the work she was doing, it's such a shame. From what it looked like, Crescent was a, it was quite a good old folks home. But because of financial pressures, pressures from unions and the like, at least seven of their residents were murdered by Wetloffer. It makes you think, what hope would an elderly resident of a lesser nursing home have if the so-called quality homes have these sort of issues? What do I think of Wetloffer? Well, I think her whole life she desperately tried to fit in. With a strict family life, this Christian stuff that was going on with her father, the only place she could try to be herself was at school and her church activities. When she had her gay friend, she was prevented from seeing him. She tried so hard to fit in, she became annoying. I think this built up her bitterness and resentment of others, and by the time she lost her husband, she snapped and became a killer. It seems from her confession that she was jealous of some of the residents, that they were outspoken or paid more attention to other nurses, and this made her angry. It gave her the red mist, so she killed them. She just felt left out in everything in her life, and now she had the power, the ultimate power, to get some revenge. I mean, it's no excuse, and she's now doing a decent stretch in the can for what she did. Now... I'm going to read out one of her poems. She published some poems under the pseudonym of Betty Weston. Now, one poem, it seems to sum up her frustrations quite a bit. It's a little bit long. I didn't really want to read it out, but I, I just thought I would. It goes, I never gave into it. The urge to experience. The urge to entwine arms, legs, skin, souls. I watched you and yarned but wouldn't admit what I wanted, needed, dreamed of. You smiled, I smiled. Sweet conversation and pounding heart and sweaty palms all happened, but that was all I allowed myself. Terrified to even steal a single kiss, and now I wonder why. Why did I keep myself apart? Why did I give in to so-called morality? Why did I let rules rule me? 
Here on this bald, scalped, emaciated, tortured bed, I wish I could have had a sweet burning memory to fill me while life empties. But I chose chastity and she is a poor companion now that most of what I feel is pained and fading and almost finality. As my life is measured by intravenous drops, I yearn for the ghost of a touch that was never conceived. My life had no birth of passion, but now it has a death to all and everything, and even to how I wish I had given in. Wow. So when you have a a listen to this, it looks like when she was young, she was held back by her strict Christian upbringing and her parents, and she never really let herself go like she wanted to, and now she's getting older. She's in this nursing home. There's all these people there with intravenous drips and she's thinking back thinking geez I've got nothing to remember no burning passionate things and now she's sort of I'll kill some people but now that she's in inside I, I somehow think she's relieved she can sort of I guess get off a drug she'd hope she can get fed sheltered she doesn't have to go to work and more importantly She's probably far away from the temptations of her bitter twistedness. Oh, by the way, that was uh, uploaded to the internet. It's there if you want to have a look. September the 2nd, 2010. So she was already halfway through her serial killer career. That's about it for the show tonight, Islanders. I hope it was an interesting one. Like I said, go and have a look at YouTube on that confession tape. That is something you need to see. Now, before we get into the Patreon shout-outs, which I've backlogging a few, don't forget to subscribe not only to the audio version of the podcast, but if you have YouTube, check out my channel there. I have put a few episodes up there. Now, they are just some random episodes that you may have heard before, unless you're a new listener. Please subscribe to the channel. We'll try and get as many people there. Now, I've just got myself a new video camera. I am going to start doing some videos. It might take a few weeks or a month to get that all sorted out, but we're going to try and do some YouTube and see how that goes. So to the new patrons this week, actually, like I said, for the last few weeks, we've got Crystal Eggerling. Thank you so much. We've got Melissa Spears. Thanks, Melissa. We've got Elsie Margarith Tonda. G'day, Elsie. I think you're from Finland. Hi, Finland. And Kastnes Johansson. I'm not sure where you're from. I think maybe Finland or somewhere. I'm not sure. But thanks to all the present, past patrons, supporters of the island. It really does make a difference. As you know, True Crime Island is totally listener supported. Uh, I like to keep it ad free. You know, I don't like the, the way ads are done in podcasts at the moment. I know you probably don't either. So it's totally listener supported. Now, I will be emailing the award patrons this week and sending out stickers. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Check out the levels and rewards. If you don't want to do a monthly payment, but you wouldn't mind getting me a beer or something, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash true crime island. You can also support the show by getting hold of some merch, such as T-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, all that stuff, fantastic tote bags. My favourites, of course, are the mugs of rage, all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. There's links to my uh, all of this on my page. That's truecrimeisland.com. 
Remember, listeners, don't order Black Mugs until further notice. And also, if you have any issue with any of the merch, email help at threadless.com with your order number. Ask for assistance. They will help you out. And also, please let me know as well. Now, I've had my purple True Crime Island shirt, which you've probably seen on Facebook all over the place when I get photos. Now, I've been washing that for over a year. Kate washed it in her washing machine last weekend, and the transfer's all mucked up. Now, I don't know if she had it on super duper wash or whatever, but I just normally have a front loader where I wash here. Over there, she's got a top loader. Now, it destroyed the print. So, if I have contacted Threadless, they're going to replace my shirt. So, if you get any problems like that, let them know and let me know too because if I have to find a new provider then I will I want to make sure everything's top notch for everybody I also have keychains lapel pins and stickers you need to contact me directly for those that can be done by emailing me cambo at truecrimeisland.com that's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say boom fuckalunga You don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family, workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tune in, you just have to show them because there's so many podcasts out there. They won't even, even if they don't like the island, there's plenty of other ones out there. Now, we do have a promo this week. This is from Jules who asked if I could run it. And it does sound like something interesting, something that us islanders would like to listen to. So here's the base basics of it but listen to the promo at the end of the show so it's fool me twice a true crime podcast this is a story about how i well that's jules was scammed and assaulted in an online dating romance scam the podcast is based on her award-winning memoir of the same name and was written by her daughter zara and she narrates a podcast which is really cool now the podcast was released on october the 25th so it should be out there now look out for it where you get your podcast Okay, so search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook if you want. So that's about it. Shout out to Curtis in Melbourne. Boom, fuck along, mate. And, of course, as always, lots of love to Maggie James and I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island and, as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boom, fuck along. and there's this instant connection. It's amazing how much the two of you just seem to click. They live somewhere far away and there's some plausible reason they can't travel to meet you. They tell you they're in love with you and you feel optimistic for the first time in a long time. They have a successful career yet somehow they need money from you to solve a short-term problem, always with the promise of paying you back. Time goes on and they need more money more urgently. You've started to see the cracks and begin to wonder whether they've been lying this whole time. All of a sudden it hits you. 
you've been scammed. Fool Me Twice is the story of my mother, Jules Hannaford, a woman who was drawn into the dangerous world of sweetheart scams. After a trip overseas to meet a stranger, a dangerous altercation in a Manchester hotel room, and thousands of pounds lost for good, she's here to tell her story. Fool Me Twice, a true crime podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Oscast Network, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.